0: it's thursday february 8th 2024 from Peachfish productions it's the gist i'm mike pesca yes i'm mike pesca the man best known for i am wrong week and i have to say that i was wrong about something else that i forgot to say that i was wrong about when i did i am wrong week in the last week of the year usually it takes a whole year to accumulate all the wrongs but i kind of thought the Bud Light Boycott wouldn't work. I thought it would be a tem yeah, this is how most Bud Light drinkers speak incorrect French. I thought it would be a, a little kerfuffle, a, a brush fire on the right. But usually what happens, oh, and of course we're talking, the it we're talking, oh, geez, that sounds awful. And the incident we're talking about is when they hired a uh, trans actor or activist, Dylan Mulvaney, to do some very limited ads. And this received a lot of pushback from uh, country music stars, Ben Shapiro. Kid Rock, other luminaries of the discourse, I thought this would not affect sales, because it almost never affects sales. There's been uh, very good studies on the effect of boycotts, and they usually engender, eh, pun intended, engender boycotts. This seems perfectly reasonable if you're reading about it, because boycott is spelled B-U-Y-C-O-T-T, so it's very distinctive, but if I say boycott, 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 you're not going to know. What I'm saying, but what I am saying is that one group says, don't buy this. Some other group who wasn't buying it says, now we're going to buy it to show our support. And it all evens out in the end. But it did not all even out in the end. Bud Light really got crushed and not against the forehead of a drunken frat guy. Bud Light sales really, really went down. And Bev, their parent company, really suffered. So they're doing what an American consumer product whose entire appeal is based on its associations rather than its intrinsic value does. They're buying an ad in the Super Bowl, there is a genie, and the genie's granting wishes.
1: I wish Peyton Manning was my best friend. Uh-huh. How we doing? Hey.
2: Oh, oh, small. Hey. I'm a genie. It's Gemini.
0: Look I'm a genie. Well, look at you. They also got Dana White, head of MMA, to signal: don't worry, we can even uh, pay money for some vaguely, or in some cases, specifically homophobic guy to turn our brand around. And speaking of such a fellow, such a culture war hero, the real thing that could turn around Bud Light and Bev's fortunes is a supportive tweet or truth from Donald Trump. He came out swinging for the distiller saying, they're not the real problem. Let's go against the real villains in our society. And we should also note, perhaps non-coincidentally, perhaps getting a big amount of work in the preceding sentence when I say perhaps, not coincidentally, Mr. Trump... Was revealed last year to own between 1 million and 5 million in Anheuser-Busch shares. So when he's saying they're a great company, let's go against the real villains, not Bud Light. That is worth more than anything a Super Bowl could bring them. On the show today, we talk about Donald Trump in another light other than Bud, Supreme Court. And just like the Bud Light case, it seems like he's doing pretty well with this case too. Trump before SCOTUS, clips and legal analysis in the spiel. But first, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. We now have a third expert. This is going to be a two-part interview with Denise Hamilton, whose new book is Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future. It's a good interview. we we'll come together in the end. Denise Hamilton is a nationally recognized workplace culture and DEI expert. She's the founder and CEO of Watch Her Work, which if you're Googling it as I'm speaking, you're like, I can't find it. It's all one word. There are no spaces. She also works with All Hands Group, which I'm going to throw a bit of confusion here is spaced all hands group is a workplace culture consultancy as you know i'm fascinated interested in dei what works what doesn't work what we're getting right how we could get it better and denise has written a new book called indivisible how to forge our differences into a stronger future denise welcome to the gist
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to start with something practical, an eye opener for me. It didn't change my life, but I read this and I said, oh, yeah, that is a good point. And I never thought of it. And it was about mm, you were consulting with some people who were doing some of these speed pitches. And I guess to fit more people in, whoever it was, uh, Thomas, the guy said, wait, maybe it wasn't Thomas. I don't want to get that wrong. Um Yes, actually, I think it was. And the fellow who was doing the pitches said, we're going to get more people in. We're going to take it down from a three minute pitch to a two minute pitch. And you said, that's discriminatory. Why?
2: <laughs> well, as you can imagine, he was horrified at my statement as well. But but the the challenge with reducing the time is that we all have a shorthand within our cultures. Right. If I say Tory Birch flats, there's a bunch of people that know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's another group that has absolutely no idea. Yeah. So if i got apartment
0: buildings, what?
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> so if I've got a business idea around, you know, starching men's dress shirts, I don't have to say a whole bunch of words to get you to that concept if you actually wear starched men's dress shirts. But if it's eyelid tape, For Asians, and you don't have any idea what it is, why you would use it, what problem does it solve? I need more time to explain that concept across culture. And that's a great example of all the little echoes that are in our culture that we don't think about as being really impactful forces, but um, they're just hard to name. What do you mean by echoes? I think an echo is, um, a, a remnant, kind of a, um, a resonant kind of piece of behavior or structural, um, condition that, um, is not really intentional. Like nobody's thinking about it, but it's just a leftover from another time, right? Um, in the book, I use an example of a, a ballet recital where, um, you know, my daughter was doing um, her first recital and her instructor sent a letter home that says, wear the tutu, wear the tights and put your hair in a severe bun. Right. And my daughter's hair could do that. But the other little black girl in the troupe, her hair couldn't do that. So of course she's heartbroken. She feels left out. She wants to quit. She wants to, now that instructor had no intention right. of hurting that little girl's feelings or making her feel excluded. She literally just copied the same form she used last year, right? It's like there's no harm intended, but still, harm was created. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of just like looking intentionally for these echoes and clearing them out.
0: Do we do ourselves a favor by saying harm harm was created as opposed to, oh, it was an unintentional slight, and there are once the point is raised fairly easy fixes for it.
2: Yeah, I do think you have to call it harm because it is harm, right? Like and 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 there's a resistance I think to using language that indicates that hurt is created because I think we want to all think of ourselves as good people, uh, as wonderful kind people that always do the right thing. And the truth is like we need to understand when we're doing things that create an experience that is negative for another human being. So mm-hmm. I don't back away from calling it harm because that's what happened. She cried for the whole day. It really yeah. was difficult for her to navigate that and she felt badly and she, and 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 so I think this, this you have touched on a really important kind of element of this whole conversation. Nobody wants to be a bad guy. Nobody wants to see themselves as a bad guy. And sometimes that gets in the way The desire to kind of protect your story and normalize what you're doing creates a space that you might be resistant to the information that we need to do something different.
0: Is the solution in the ballet example for, Mm -hmm. I mean, I would hope the solution would be once the ballet teacher or whoever made that decree is alerted to the fact that one of her ballet dancers is upset, this person would say, oh, oh no, that's horrible. I didn't mean to do that. And to have a very reasonable accommodation, like, you don't have to do that, or don't worry, uh, she says to that particular girl, you're fine, uh, everyone else could have their hair in the bun, or is the solution, must the solution be, we're going to go away with that, we're going to do away with that uh, requirement that hair is being a bun so as to accommodate this one dancer for whom that's literally not possible?
2: Well, I think that's, that's a really interesting question, because that's a debate we're all in Right now, do you change the culture or do you make an exception? And I believe in the curb cut effect. I think when you make something better for one, you generally make it better for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There are little girls with short hair yeah. that can't do. There are little girls with really wild curly hair. Like it's not a problem that only one ethnicity faces so maybe if you kind of eliminate that as an expectation you'll you'll attract a whole different group of little girls into that troop so i think it's about expanding there are times when you know a police officer needs to wear a police uniform right and and there and that's but there's a lot of things that are really arbitrary and if they create exclusion why not remove them
0: I'm wondering about when you're doing consulting and everyone's more or less on the same page, trying to do things right and get uh, and 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 be more equitable and get credit for being more equitable. It's one thing, but when there's a law or a decree or a mandate, I think it probably becomes something entirely different. And then it's not just about hey, let's all. Then it's not necessarily about win-win situations. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you uh, had to advise? In in terms of the field of DEI, where it wasn't advice, where it was a decree?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that this is where, you know, we should probably crack open some books instead of banning them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that we we have so many examples in our history, right? We don't have to come up with this. Um, Ruby Bridges was six years old and had to be escorted by the National Guard to integrate schools. She had to a little six-year-old first grader had to be escorted. Why? Because they had to make a decree that these schools had to be integrated. Was it because everyone at that time was a terrible, horrible, rotten, monstrous person? It was, I, I would say no. I would say it was because they had to compel a necessary change. Yeah. Right. And so I have a thousand examples of Ruby Bridges style stories. And so when we look at that and we say, well, I don't want this to be compulsory. Mm -hmm. Well, what else are you doing? Do you pay taxes because it's voluntary? Do you, like, like this is how a society works. You have to have some framework of of shared decision-making around how you address problems. So I think, uh, you know, I always have to encourage people to say, Instead of being frustrated that you're being made to do something, let's think of why you have to be made to do it. Let's focus on what is the driving intention here and how can we align ourselves around that intention?
0: Yeah, but it becomes harder there. Is, so the premise that I'm hearing you saying is that there are some behaviors that must be compelled. And you talk about integration and Ruby Bridges. I agree. Cosine. Another one would be vaccines, which I suppose is slightly more controversial, but we've always compelled vaccines if you want to be in the army or go to a public school. But then there are harder choices. And I think of, and I could pull a lot of examples, but Yoel Inbar, who is the professor of psychology psychology who was about to be offered a job at ucla but in the past he had objected to ironically dei statements as compelled speech and empty value signaling right so this is just a stance a stance that he expressed on his podcast and when students at ucla found out about the stance they uh they objected to that and he was denied the job there's a little bit of uh, let's say there's a little bit of ambiguity and was he absolutely offered the job? No. And was it certainly because of uh, his st- – uh, well, actually, it was certainly because of what he said on the podcast. But that is – that's a harder question, right? It's harder than Ruby Bridges. What do you do? Do you compel a person to sign on to DEI's speeches, uh, statements, and if not, what's the requirement versus uh, the sh- the should and ought verse the versus the must.
2: Well, let me give you an example, that, a real life example that I experienced. I worked with the organization for about six months and um, our contract was over, but I have an open door policy. You know, you can always call me and ask me a question, right? And they called me a couple months after and they said, we have a individual contributor that we wanna promote. He's a rock star. We think he's gonna do a great job, um, but we, we do have a concern. And I said, oh, what's the concern? Um, he said, he's afraid of um, me too. He's being mm-hmm. af- afraid of being me too as a verb, which I always find funny. Yeah. He's afraid of that. And so because of that, he is refusing to manage women. He won't have meetings with women alone. He won't, you know, he, he's just letting you know up front he's not going to do lunches or meals with women. He's just, he's not going to manage women. Yeah. And, and so I asked them, I said, and what did you say? <laughs> because I, I want to know, did, did our conversations make any difference at all? I said, what did you say? Well, it struck us as really difficult. I mean, he's, he's great. I said, so you have, let me reflect back to you what I've heard you say. You have someone that is telling you on the job interview that they're that not- they can't do the they're job. They're not willing yeah. to do 50% yeah. <laughs> of the job. They're telling right. you in the job interview that they're not going to do it. So is that a person you should hire?
0: Yeah, that's true. What would you say? Maybe I'm. this is unfairly throwing a set of circumstances that you're unfamiliar with. But mm-hmm. in this case, the students who objected to the professor being hired said, essentially what you're saying, we're not going to get a new era of openness if we allow these people who are against DEI statements to be employed. On the other hand, there is a tension there. The students took the view that opposition to DEI statements should be grounds for non-employment. The guy said he would sign it, he would say it. He just intellectually has a problem with it because he has no choice not to say it. It seems much more complex than any mm-hmm. of the than than the, than the guy who won't meet with uh, women as part of his job.
2: Well, I think I think that um, we have to be we have to be honest, right? we are not in a position, we don't really see racism as much as racism occurs. And that's a really important, that's a harsh concept. And it's a complex concept for people to understand. When somebody, when I walk into a store and somebody follows me around the store, like, is that is that racism? You know, and if, because you as a, a person that's not Black doesn't experience that, you can be in a position to tell me that's not racism. Mm -hmm. But when it happens nine times out of 10, when it happens 900 times a year, what is the impact of that? But what we have is the situation where people who are not experiencing, they're not in a position to experience a thing, are trying to shape what the experience is like. And I know as a person, I have a master's degree. I did a lot of college and I've always done um, predominantly white institutions. I know what it's like to operate under a professor who does not believe in my right to be there, Uh who does not believe in my ability to compete or perform who embarrasses you in class who and I don't know this man I don't know that he's going to do these things but but I, I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is we're trying to find and I would I would say inartfully I, I will I, I'll concede that there's a lot of inartful <laughs> behavior in this space but I think we're all trying to find what are the indicators that someone is going to conduct themselves in a particular way we can't do anything once they get tenure you can't do anything you know at the end of the discussion what can you do at the beginning of the discussion i think that's the intention there and it's not always perfect it's flawed because how can you assess like the intentions of somebody's heart other than what their words are under other than what their actions are what they do and what they say and i think there's an effort to kind of um discern what is this person going to do once they get in this position of power, if they don't agree with fundamental values.
0: We feel, the students were saying, there's an indication that he's not going to share the values that we prize. I would argue that since he has this long tenure of teaching at a different university, you could look at his actual track record versus his statements on Uh, DEI Mm -hmm. as compelled speech or value signaling. But that is the thesis that they're putting forward. There are red flags that this person doesn't share our values. I'm sure he'd have uh, an answer to that. Yes, I do. I was making a narrower point Mm -hmm. that... I do share the values, but if you require me to sign a statement saying I share the values, that statement itself is worthless. If it's a requirement that I sign it just to get a job, I did sign it. I'm just telling you the uh, thoughts about signing it, yeah. which is you know, so, which is uh, that it's not as valuable as if I signed it um, and I had the choice not to. Sure, uh, sure. I want to get off. I didn't even know I'd be talking about you all in bar, <laughs> but- I want to go back to the idea of the uh, two-minute pitch that got that used to be a three-minute pitch. It does raise to me the fact that any time that we go very fast and that we don't have a lot of uh, room or space, uh, as it's sometimes called, just enough time to process things, it's more likely that we'll fall back on Behaviors that we might not even know are discriminatory. You know, stereotypes and shortcuts, and not thinking about the experiences of others. And it also seems to me that in that one anecdote, you're pointing to the fact that the pace of the world is the enemy of your work in a sort of way. It so is,
2: and the and the availability of information. We are being flooded with information, like we're computers. We're not computers. We don't know how to synthesize this much information this fast, right? So um, there's there's all of this new history we didn't know. All of these stories of things that we've done and things that have happened that are horrific that's shaping us. Um, there's there's this kind of like ability to transmit out and out lies at the speed of light literally at the speed of light we don't really have digital literacy to be able to discern we share more nonsense you know like nobody even has to pay for for um extensive ad dollars if they just make it shocking enough we'll do the work for them and share it all over the world we're not really set up for this so it in a world that's telling you to move fast and break things i say slow down and build it carefully and that's not a that's not the easiest message to sell, but you know that's why I'm here. That's why I wrote the book. This is not <laughs> simple work, you know. But but I believe like we are a people that can do hard things. And like, we sent we sent somebody to the moon in a tin can, that uh, with computers that weren't even as sophisticated as the phones we have in our pockets right now. Like we are a people that can do hard things. And that that story when Kennedy says, you know, hey, we're gonna go to the moon. It takes them seven years. When he said it, they had no idea how they were going to do it. They literally had no idea. They were starting from scratch. What if they had quit at year one or year three or year five? Like, we, we, you have to have tenacity. You have to have commitment and follow through. Um, otherwise, you don't get powerful results. So, yeah, our just add water, microwave, um, energy kind of, you know. And also, there's another force that shapes this as well. Um, this hopelessness and helplessness, you're too small. Wait, you're 22 and you haven't built a multi-billion dollar company. What are you even doing with your life? Right? Like this idea that you're not powerful. You can't, you're waiting for someone to come. That's going to make everything better. You're looking for a transformational leader. You're looking for someone that you can follow. And it's like, no, it's you, you are in the most powerful country in the world. You're in the richest country in the world. Like like you have every tool at your disposal. How dare you move through the world powerless? You're not powerless. But there is this perverse kind of incentive to talk us out of our power. Because the more disempowered we feel, the more disempowered we act. And there's always somebody willing to step into that void and tell us what the world looks like instead of us discerning that for ourselves.
0: That is Denise Hamilton, author of the just released book, Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future. And tomorrow, Denise will be back to broaden this conversation from the office to society. I have some examples which tests her beliefs. I hope you will join us for that tomorrow. And now, the spiel. The case for and against Donald Trump's removal from the Colorado ballot came before the Supreme Court today. Going in, I thought it likely that SCOTUS, that's what we court watchers sometimes call the court if we want non-court watchers to punch us in the nose. Anyway, I thought SCOTUS would overrule Colorado, but I wasn't sure how, and I wasn't sure by how much. Well, I got more clarity into both those questions And as to the by how much question, I'm moving the spread from overturned minus six to overturned minus 7.5. I'll explain. The two main lawyers for each side are each highly credentialed. For Colorado, we heard from Jason Murray, who interestingly clerked for both Alana Kagan and Neil Gorsuch. You might think that would give him an advantage. You might think. But first up was Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, former Solicitor General of Texas, wrote some abortion laws you probably didn't like, but showed himself to be an adept arguer. Sonia Sotomayor, however, wasn't going to let this guy put anything past her. And the way Trump has been talking lately, you can see why she fears something fishy may be going on.
3: Are you setting up so that if some president runs for a third term, That a state can't disqualify him from the ballot? Uh, Of
0: course a state can disqualify
1: him from the ballot.
0: Mitchell said, no, 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 third terms are definitely out, but insurrections, and we're not conceding it was an insurrection. Well, he had a lot of reasons why the 14th Amendment third clause wouldn't apply to Donald Trump. One was that Trump's not an officer of the United States. Eh? Well, the argument goes like this. He's the only president in history, other than maybe George Washington, to never have taken an oath for office other than the one time he took the oath for president, and Mitchell is saying that the president is not considered an officer. Now, everyone else would be disqualified because they once took an oath and they'd be violating their oath, but the only oath Trump took, like George Washington himself, like other than maybe the great George Washington, was for president. So nothing, none of these rules would apply to him. Maybe him alone, of everyone else running for office, Sotomayor had her doubts about that argument. Even though the President
3: may or may not qualify, presidency may or may not qualify as an office under the United States, um, your principal argument is that the President is not an officer of the United States, correct?
1: Yeah, I would say it a little more forcefully than what Your Honor just described. We believe the presidency is excluded from office under the United States. But the argument we have that he's excluded the president as an officer of the United States is the stronger of the two textually and has fewer uh, implications for other constitutions.
3: A bit factors. of a gerrymandered rule. Isn't it designed to benefit only your client?
1: I certainly wouldn't call it gerrymandered. That implies nefarious. Well, that you just- didn't
3: make it up. I know some scholars have been discussing it. But just so we're clear, under that reading, only um, Only the petitioner is disqualified because virtually every other president except Washington um, Mm -hmm. has taken an oath to support the Constitution, correct?
1: That's right. Every president, to our knowledge, every other president.
0: John Adams might also be excluded because he took the oath as a vice president, which is not an officer. But Yes. But no, quite a stretch. I'm going to say John Adams very much does seem like an officer. It would bother probably all of his descendants, and I'm going to say Paul Giamatti to hear that he wasn't an officer of the court. I don't think this court will definitely buy that, but they might. Alana Kagan pursued that very point.
1: It does seem odd that President Trump would fall through the cracks in a sense, but if officer of the United States means appointed officials, there's just no way he can be covered under section three. The court would have to reject our officer argument to get to that point.
4: And is there any better reason if he go um, to the office argument that Justice Jackson was suggesting, is there any better reason for saying that an insurrectionist cannot hold the whole panoply of offices in the United States, but we're perfectly fine with that insurrectionist being
1: president? I think that's an even tougher argument for us to make as a policy matter, because one would think, of all offices, the presidency would be the one you'd want to keep out the Confederate insurrectionist. That's the commander-in-chief of the army. So, again, that's why we're leaning more on the officer of argument than the office under. We're not conceding office under. But we definitely have the stronger textual case and structural case on officer of the United States.
0: I guess that's good lawyering, putting forth all the arguments, but admitting which ones are the bad ones. At least that type of lawyering, well, I don't know if it's good, but at least it's the type of lawyering that justices can respect. The kind they can't really respect is the one where the lawyer just won't play ball. The justices love lobbying hypotheticals, and an acceptable answer is no, I am denying your hypothetical. They hate when you do that. Here, Jason Murray, the lawyer for the plaintiffs for Colorado, clearly annoyed Neil Gorsuch.
5: You say that there's no, no legislation necessary. I thought that was the whole theory of your case. And no procedure necessary. It happens automatically. Well certainly you need a procedure in order to have any remedy to enforce the disqualification which is different. Under, that's a whole separate question that's the de facto doctrine doesn't work here okay put that aside he's disqualified from the moment self executing done and i would think that a person who would receive a direction from that person the president former president in your view would be free to act as he or she wishes without regard to that individual I don't think so, because I think, again, the de facto officer doctrine would nevertheless come into play to say this is. No, de facto, that that doesn't work, Mr. Murray, because de facto officer is to ratify the conduct that's done afterwards and and, and insulate it from judicial review. Put that aside.
0: As I mentioned, Murray clerked for Gorsuch. He wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post arguing for Gorsuch's nomination to this court. Gorsuch thanked him with a shiv right in the liver. Murray also clerked for Alana Kagan. In fact, the op-ed he wrote for The Post was titled, Liberals should welcome Gorsuch, like Kagan, he puts the law before politics. And then she came out and thanked him with another case of judicial review right to the solar plexus. The question you're about to hear her ask got to the greatest weakness in the minds of most of the justices on the court, the greatest weakness of the Colorado case. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single
4: state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, So whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan and it really you know what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between you know whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean
0: that seems quite extraordinary doesn't it? Murray unconvincingly groped his way towards a denial based on technicalities which seemed not only unpersuasive to Kagan but also to Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. The framers were
5: concerned about charismatic rebels who might rise through the ranks up to and including the presidency of the United States.
2: But then why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3? The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred and president is not there.
0: Between who the hell does Colorado think it is, which was supported even by Coloradan Neil Gorsuch, and is it self-executing? And even what Justice Jackson was talking about there, the president not being subject to this particular clause, there was a lot of momentum against Murray, against Colorado, against disqualifying Donald Trump from the ballot, or any ballot. Now, you might think that a former law clerk would have Pretty good ins with his former bosses, but who knows? Maybe he was the guy who took his shoes off in the office or microwaved fish. Or most likely, in this case, he was just the guy with the worst arguments as interpreted by this set of justices. Now, after today, I would be shocked if Colorado wins. I would be surprised if they didn't get at least one vote from a Democratic appointee to go with the six Republican appointees. I wouldn't be that shocked if they got two votes from the Democrats. And once you get two votes, I don't know, maybe Sotomayor will join the others just to express some unanimity. Maybe not. But I won't be shocked by an 8 1 decision in this. Or not. I could be wrong. I do know, or at least I strongly suspect, that this is all not really about feet, fish, or even the facts of insurrection. It's about the legal process. And a bit about the Latin phrase, quis in irum abo. Est in Monte Civitatis, which translates to, as you Latin speakers know, who the fuck is Colorado? And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist, by which I mean Coriwara producer, Joel Patterson senior producer, Michelle Pesca spearheads special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist, and thanks for listening.